because of hard-heartedness. A hardened heart is at the heart of a broken-hearted marriage. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. This morning, I'm talking about what has to be one of the most difficult issues facing the church in the past half century, and that is the subject and the issue of divorce. And I want you to hear this message in the spirit in which it is intended. I believe that God's Word speaks to us whatever area of life that we're in. So if we're single right now and looking to one day be married, we can see what God's Word says and how to apply that. Maybe we've got some friends who are in difficult situations that we can encourage in the Word of God. Maybe we're married right now, we're going through a bit of a rough season, we just want to see what the Word of God says about what it is to love wholeheartedly within marriage. Maybe you've come out of a a divorce recently or years ago and you've still got pain and and suffering from there. I, I know that you want me to do whatever I can to help other people not have to go through the same pain and agony that you did. So I hope that you would hear this message in the spirit in which it is intended, not as condemning, not as judgmental, but as someone who loves you and wants God's absolute best for you and wants you to hear what his word says. So Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him. He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Perhaps nothing in the past half century has so invaded the church like the scarlet letter D. It is more difficult in this country to get a driver's license than it is to get a marriage license. Have you thought about that? Get a driver's license, you have to go through quite a bit of training, you have to go through an intermediary program now, and then only after doing that are you allowed the full privileges of having the ability to drive. Not so with marriage. Go down to the courthouse, wait 30 days, and as long as you can get a couple of witnesses and someone to officiate the ceremony and pay a small fee in the eyes of the state, you are good to go. Something tells me that marriage ought to be taken far more seriously than just that. You know, I don't do a whole lot 
of weddings nowadays. Now, I get asked to do a lot of them, but I, I don't do a whole lot of them because there's a couple of criteria that I always place on it. One, I want the couple to be believing, professing followers of Jesus Christ. And if they're not, I want to witness to them and get them involved in a local church. And it doesn't have to be our local church necessarily, but it needs to be a Bible-believing local church. And the second thing I ask of them is if they are currently practicing sexual relations outside of the bonds of marriage, I ask them to cease doing that. And if they're living together outside of marriage, I ask them to move out. Very often, that's the cutoff date right there. But I think we live in a culture where it is very easy to look at marriage as something to try rather than to commit to. It's very easy for us to look at marriage as a Hollywood or Disney romance rather than a covenant before Almighty God. Look at the way some people take it. There was a celebrity couple not too long ago who decided to go through the process of divorce, but they didn't use that term. They said they were consciously uncoupling. Whatever in the world that means. We often treat marriage kind of like you do a, a, a leased car. You know, try it out, use it for a while, and when it doesn't work out the way you want it to, it starts getting kind of rough, trade it in and get a new one. And yet that's entirely opposite of what Jesus tells us. Now you have to understand the society of Jesus' day talked a lot about divorce. It came up really, really frequently. In fact, they would have been very familiar with no-fault divorce a case in which we weren't familiar uh, until the 60s. And what the Pharisees are always seeking to do is to trap Jesus. They're never asking questions because they genuinely want to know the answer. They are always asking questions in order to try to put Jesus in a box, in order to get him to contradict himself, or in order to further advance their agenda. Because when they can no longer be the spiritual kings of the hill, when somebody threatens their kingdom, or moves their stuff, or takes their spot. Man, it puts the Pharisees out of line, and we're that way too. The problem with the Pharisees is they don't realize it's not their stuff, it's not their spot, it's not their box, and it's not their kingdom, it's God's kingdom. And it's the same in the church. It's not our spot, it's not our stuff, it's not our kingdom. The kingdom belongs to the Lord, and neither is it ultimately your marriage. It's God's marriage. It belongs to Him first and foremost, as the one who authored it, as the one who brought it into being. And so Jesus responds to the Pharisees in a way in which protects the law and protects those who are under the law. And basically, he refers to Deuteronomy 24, where it says a, a guy cannot remarry his former wife once she's been married to someone else. What happened was the rabbis, the teachers of the day, broadened that definition to where it went beyond the bounds of adultery to where anything goes. It was a world where women were often subjugated and men had all the power. So it wasn't just adultery or abandonment that the rabbis intended here. You could be divorced, ladies, if you didn't keep your house clean enough or if you just woke up and maybe didn't look pleasing enough to your spouse that day, he could let you go. And the problem was in that day, for a woman to go through a divorce not only meant a scandal in the community, it also meant no source of income. It wasn't possible for them to go out and get jobs. That's the reason that Naomi in the Old Testament is so concerned for Ruth. She didn't go through a divorce, but her husband died. She's very, very concerned that Ruth gets remarried because she's worried about whether or not she'll actually have income. And the Lord provides. And in the same way, 
Jesus shows a concern and protection for women, for those who are abused, for those who are mistreated in his protection. And so he assumes, especially in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, that a woman who is divorced against her will without just cause by a husband is going to have to remarry in order to provide. And that's why he says the divorcing husband makes or causes her to commit adultery. He doesn't place the blame on the woman in that instance. He places it on the husband. And the big concern for Jesus is moving from adultery to divorce because it is one of the biblical grounds for divorce. That's why Joseph is commended so well in the New Testament when he thinks that Mary has cheated on him and the angel comes and tells, tells him it's not true, but he was minded to put her away privately. He was not minded to go out and seek a public divorce. He is held up as honorable because of that. Now we understand something. In Genesis 2, God does something different beginning in Genesis 1 that he doesn't do with the plant and animal kingdom that he does with human beings. He makes us into the image of God. And then in Genesis 2, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a helper for her. And the helper in Genesis 2 is the same Hebrew word used for God described as helper in Psalms. So it's not a term of, of dominion. It's not a term of subjugation for the woman. And he says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let not man for asunder, put asunder. And so for the scripture, for the Lord, marriage is more than just a legal agreement. It's more than a contract. In fact, it is a representation of Christ and the church. It is therefore considered holy matrimony because God is representing his character, his attributes, himself within the context of marriage. And even the way that Jesus describes how he will one day return for the church, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Christ is described as the bridegroom. As the bridegroom. We refer to the time when we won't have to be hungry anymore because we will eat at what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So scripture takes this very significantly. So we understand that God never ordained the institution of divorce. Man did. We know that we live in a fallen world. That's why Jesus will say, well, Moses allowed this because he understood that in the world in which we live, things are not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes people get upset with, God, why does he allow these things to happen? Why is wrong in the world? Well, you wouldn't understand what wrong was unless you had some kind of concept of right, unless things were different at the beginning. You can't figure out something that's crooked unless you've seen a glimpse of what's straight. And that's the whole concept of creation, that God has created a world that was good, and human beings have corrupted and defiled that world. And so we recognize that things always don't work out the way that we intend. And so Jesus gives two allowances here. He recognizes that in marriage, as all of us do, if a divorce takes place, something has gone wrong. It's not this kind of morally neutral thing, well, we just don't feel like doing it anymore, so we give up. That's, that's not true in the kingdom of God. He gives two allowances for it. One is in the case of unrepentant immorality, which is adultery, somebody cheats on someone else. Or two, when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse. So those are the two allowances, adultery and abandonment. The problem is that many people who are seeking divorce today, even in the church, do so outside biblical grounds. And here's the truth of the matter. Irreconcilable differences in the church of God 
is never a justified reason for divorce in the eyes of God. And can I ask something of many of us in here? How can we file for irreconcilable differences when we've been reconciled together with Christ? In other words, if we are made right with Christ, our job as much as we can is to be made right with one another. And how much more is that true in marriage? And so we understand that no certificate of divorce actually ends marriage in God's eyes when it's based on trivial, unbiblical grounds. In fact, here's what God says about divorce. He says he hates it, Malachi 2, because it represents a separation of who he is. It represents a destruction of the Trinity, which is never true eternally, but it represents that in an earthly portrayal. And so in 20th century Britain, in order to get a divorce, you had to go and get an act of parliament. Now it's as easy as going to the, the courthouse. And, and it's not so much that divorce happens that's the problem. It's sometimes the attitude that we have towards it. If you're not happy, try someone else. Everybody's asking, how does this person make me feel? As if feelings is the governing body for our entire life, and it's not. Friends, if you live on your feelings day to day, how you feel about something, that's going to change depending on the day. Is You have to base your life on the truth of God's word because it will last longer than anything else will. So when someone says, I don't love you anymore, they're not recognizing that love isn't simply a feeling. Ultimately, it's a commitment. And beyond that, it's a covenant before the Lord. And the covenant is there just as much for the bad times as it is for the good times. And so maybe you're thinking about this right now, and you're thinking in your mind, well, this person doesn't make me a better person. I want somebody who makes me a better person. I just feel stuck. You think God feels that way about you? Let me ask you this. Do you make God, do you make Jesus a better person? Some of you just say, well, I've, I've tried to change his mind on a few things. You're not going to do that. You think Jesus ever sits around and asks, what, what, is, what does this person really profit me? What have they done for me? Does he break his covenant with you? Do you break his covenant with you, for you? What if God ever sits up in heaven and he says, man, I'm just stuck with him. I'm just stuck with her. Here's what God says, Hosea 2, 19 through 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now listen, there is no area of life where grace is more needed than in the area of marriage. When you put two sinful human beings together, you are going to have tension. That's why the scripture encourages us to put off selfishness and to put on selflessness, understanding of one another, walking in one another's shoes, not taking one another for granted. And you say, well, I've done all these things, but my spouse still does wrong. Well, that's not an excuse for you to turn around and do wrong. You're responsible to God for your actions, first and foremost, and the best antidote for unhealthy marriages and preventing divorces is to seek to do marriage God's way. You have to start out with the idea that divorce will never be an option for you. That's the problem that many people have. They see divorce as an option rather than as an exception, which is how the scripture views it. This is what Christensen says. 
He that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? And I want you to see the whole cause of divorce, indeed, the whole cause of sin, the whole cause of destruction of the entire human race is found in verse 8 of Matthew 19 when Jesus says, He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to do this. It's because of hard-heartedness. A hardened heart is at the heart of a broken-hearted marriage. A hardened heart is always at the heart of marital brokenheartedness. And what happens is, when we begin to ignore one another, or rather when we begin to see other people as burdens rather than blessings, as we see them as hindrances rather than gifts of God to us. What we start to do is we slowly but surely start to take other people for granted. And so we start ignoring their request or we don't communicate with them. And pretty per soon that person feels isolated. And as a result of feeling isolated, they're more vulnerable to outside voices because they want someone with whom they can communicate. And the brokenness of the marriage begins to show up very, very quickly. What happens is you are either becoming hard-hearted yourself or you can cause someone else to start to become hard-hearted. That's why Jesus will say it always is a matter of the heart. And if your heart is not right before God, I don't care what avenue of life you're in, whether it's your marriage, your kids, your work, or whatever, it's always, always going to suffer if your heart isn't right before God. And so if you're jealous, if you're lustful, if you're envious, if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're not daily repenting of these things, it will lead to destruction. Because ultimately at the root of your relationship has to be the Lord. You have to love Jesus more than you love each other. And so some of you are thinking, boy, he's talking about a, a lot of ideal world things right now. What does he say for me? Well, a couple of things, depending on what station of life you're in. If you are considering a divorce right now, I don't know your circumstances, but if you are, let me just suggest a few things. One, remember that God's entire purpose revolves around redemption. Have you done everything you possibly can in the strength of the Lord to be reconciled? And here's the question. You know, sometimes we'll have a, a divorce where it's obvious where the fault line is, but very often what I need to ask as a believer in Christ, is there anything that I could have done in my life? Is there anything in my tone? Is there anything in my heart that I need to repent of? Even if I'm not the primary one to blame, Lord, where can I learn from this? Where can I grow from this? And listen to me, if you can possibly save your marriage, you should save your marriage. It's not always possible, but you should try. Two, seek godly counsel. Have others who will walk through this process with you. I don't know how many times in 10 years of pastoral ministry, one spouse will come to me and say, I would love for us to go to counseling together, but the other person won't even consider it. Listen, if you're that other person, how arrogant of you, how prideful, how boastful that you won't consider loving your spouse enough to do this for her, even if you don't think it's necessary. Listen, I am telling you, godly counsel, a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. And if you will consider that, rather than being stubborn about it, 
Don't you want to look back and say you've done everything you could try to do? So seek godly counsel. Have others who will walk through the process with you. Three, determine to follow God's leading at all costs, not simply your own preference. When we look at what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane where he did not want to take on the burden of sin, but he said, Father, not my will but thine be done. That's got to be the goal of marriage for us. And then four, if you're not doing this, and maybe your marriage is in a decent spot, but if it's not or if it is, you need to start praying together. I don't know how many couples, when I ask that, most of them do not pray together. You know what? If you want to keep your enemies in mind, if you want to keep your enemies before you at all time, I suggest you not pray for them. Because if you start praying for them, man, the people that you used to hate, you may start loving. Heaven knows God may start doing the work. And I've seen more couples who, when they will get together and they will seriously pray for their marriage, pray for one another, pray for their children, and do so consistently. Man, God just begins to change your life and change your heart. Isn't it interesting? How can you go from, isn't it something that someone can go from loving, from fully accepting someone one moment to hating and fully rejecting someone just a little bit longer down the line? How does that happen? It happens because of hardness of heart. It happens when both spouses are not ad adequately, actively seeking the Lord. And it can happen to any one of us. All right. To those of you who have been divorced, I want you to consider this. What have you learned? You say, I've learned never to get married again. Now, I'm not saying that. What, what have you learned? What has God taught you through this? What have you learned about people? But what have you learned about your own heart and your own life? How have you said, through this, I'm not going to run from God. I'm going to run to God. I'm going to grow. I'm going to help other people. I'm going to make sure my, my heart is in the right place. How you repent will determine how you respond. All right, number two. If you're considering these categories and you said, you know, he's talked about adultery and abandonment, but there's this third category that's, that's mine and I don't know how I fit in. If you have been divorced unbiblically and remarried, the solution is not to go out and get another divorce. That, that, that's not it, it, it at all. And some people will say, well, someone who has been divorced unbiblically and gotten remarried unbiblically because they've been divorced unbiblically, are they in a perpetual state of adultery? No. If they've repented and they moved to the Lord, listen, God does not want you to live a life of perpetual sorrow over your past sins. And we're not here to give you a guilt trip over your past. We're here to move together for the Lord. And so determine, is it on, was it on biblical grounds? And if it wasn't, here I am right now, then I repent, I turn to the Lord, and I say I make the best of what's here right now, and I trust the Lord for the rest of that. And then this is the final thing, and I want you to, to hear this more than anything else. Please hear this. This is specifically for those of you who have been divorced. This is specifically for those of you who struggle with how you view divorce in the church. God's blessings to you in Christ are just as available to you as they are to anybody. You do not have to live as a second-class citizen in the church of God if you've got a D next to your name. You simply do not. Sometimes people think, well, divorce means we can't do anything in the church anymore. It's just not true. Read the scripture. And some say, well, it's in the Bible. Well, gluttony is in there too, and if you're overeating, you ought not to be doing anything in the church. Greed is in there as well. If you're spending money funny, listen, we've got a, got a problem. I've got a couple of disqualifications where I may not be able to get up here next week. What I would encourage you to do 
is to read the Word of God for yourself. So much in church life we based on what we were told years and years ago, and we never took the opportunity to read the Word of God for ourselves. Do that. Please do that. And do not treat people who have been divorced, who have gone through the pain, as second-class believers, because God doesn't see them that way at all. Last time I checked, I'll check it again. Last time I checked, the only thing that God won't forgive is unbelief. Everything else is on the table. All right, to those of you who are married right now, wherever you are, I would encourage you, use your struggles, and you're going to have struggles. My goodness, are you going to have struggles? Use your struggles to struggle together for the Lord. And I want to give you some statistics here. How many of you have heard, you've heard this over and over, that 50% of all marriages end in divorce? How many of you heard that? You heard that? A few of you have? You know, that's a projection. It's actually not true. It's misleading. That is based on people who have been married multiple times, including the guy who came out of the parking lot a few years back and talked to Mark Ayers and said, I want to get I want you all to marry us. And we said, we well, have to go through counseling. That's our rule before you do so. And the guy said, counseling? I've been married six times. I don't need any counseling. That guy's included in those statistics. So it really kind of in, it inflates everything. The, the truth is 72% of all people who have been married are still married to their first spouse. And in fact, some people say, well, it's just as high in the church as it is in the world. That's also not true. Because it bases people who profess to be Christians rather than people who actually go to church. You know something? Going to church makes a difference for your marriage. It really does. And in, staying, and in praying together, you are able to stay together. And I would just close with this, and you needed to hear this. Irreconcilable differences with people are reconcilable with God. There is nothing in your life that God can't redeem and can't fully buy back, and he can do so right now. So wherever you are in life, you're thinking about getting married until after the sermon, and now you don't want to fool with it, which is where Jesus says to those who are eunuchs for eunuchs' sake, maybe that's a good idea. He says some people have that gift, some people are used for the kingdom. But to everyone else, he says, walk in the truth right now. Wherever you've been, walk in the truth of God and you will be just as precious in the eyes of God as you have ever been and will ever be. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at veryefields.com.